Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in Indian River County in Vero Beach, Florida. Um, uh, just such a beautiful place to live, even with pandemic quarantines and all of the craziness that is going on in the world. It is a beautiful place to be, to wake up every morning and see palm trees and just the wildlife that is out here. Now, granted, we do have some wildlife that's not the kind of wildlife we'd like to have, like great blue herons and egrets and gators and all that good stuff. But we can choose where to focus our thoughts, where to focus our view, and I choose to focus it on you, my listeners, to help you build a better life, to build a better business, and just to get those negative thoughts out of your head. And today, I am so, oh my God, I'm so happy to have my guests on the show. We went to high school together at the Ursuline School in New Rochelle, New York, and the girls I graduated with, the women now that I graduated with, we always really try to support each other. And I've kind of followed Lee Woodruff's career off and on over the years, and she recently wrote a book about her dad. And with this being Father's Day week, I thought it was perfect timing to have Lee on the show to talk about her book. Um, it, it's just an unbelievable book. It's called Memorial Star, the story of Edwin R. Woodruff, the nation's first African-American FBI agent killed in the line of duty. And to date, he is still the only African-American FBI agent ever killed in the line of duty. It's a powerful story. Um, and, and Lee, I'm so glad you could be on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited. You know, I you know, I think back to our days at Earthline, and I didn't know about your dad till I had read about you managing to get a street renamed in Brooklyn where most of his life was lived and stuff. And, you know, I just find it so interesting because most of our class did not know that my brother had died two years before I started at Earthline. And that sort of dictated how I was at school as well with that loss still so fresh that I hadn't processed. And we had a number of other girls at school that had losses like that, but it's not something that we talked about that by, back then. Why do you think that is, and, and how did this impact your life? Well, I think painful memories are not those that you really feel comfortable bringing up in the cafeteria during lunch. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's that. Um, you know, and, and it's a painful memory. And so it's not easy to talk about. There's a trust factor involved. You want to share those memories and those feelings with people that you feel very comfortable with um, or that already know your story. It's just hard to do when you're a teenager, you're in high school, there are a million other things going on. And so that just never really comes to the forefront. So I completely understand why, you know, we would have some shared experiences and not really 
know about them unless we were in a very close-knit um, circle and that topic happened to come up. Um, I kind of just dealt with it just by dealing with it. My situation is a little bit different from yours. Yours, Your situation with your brother passing, and, and my condolences to you, I know it's a long time coming, but was fresher in high school. Mine happened in 1969, so I had decades to process this and put it in its proper compartment. And that, I think, became key, compartmentalizing the childhood trauma that I went through that kind of tucks it away and locks it away, and you don't even really think about it unless someone specifically brings it up. Grief and loss are such a, a big topic right now with COVID, with the, the shootings, with Black Lives Matter, with just all of the chaos that is happening in our world today. I know when I wrote my book, What Would a Wise Woman Do?, and I talked about my brother's passing, it, was, it surfaced a lot of emotions for me reliving that aspect of it and it helped me process some things that I had never fully processed. Having read Memorial Star, you, your heart is all over this book and I had, before I looked at the photos of your dad at the back of the book, I had a visual of him throughout and I'm, I'm so happy to see that it matched <laughs> the photos of what he looked like maybe because I know you and I know what you look like and, and mm-hmm. you definitely embrace your dad um, what was it like for you to write this book and why did you feel that now was the time I mean I know it launched just before COVID yeah um, <laughs> surprise surprise <laughs> I, I can't even explain, you know, the monkey wrench that has been thrown in that. But it's okay. It's okay. We regroup and, and we move on. But going back to, um, and, and first, thank you for uh, saying that about the visual with my father because that was actually very important to me to tell the story and describe things in the story that made it so visually accurate for the reader. So for you to give me that feedback that you kind of had an accurate um, picture of my father in your mind, then I can check that box off as mission accomplished. So thank you for that. But um, the journey, it was, you know, filled with every emotion that you can think of. I mean, I started the book three years prior to ever writing one word because I had a ton of interviews to do with uh, colleagues of my father's that, that worked with him at the Bureau at the time, um, supervisors, family members, just getting background information on different places. You know, it was important to me to be factually accurate in everything that I was talking about. And so I wanted to write it in such a way that would draw the reader in and bring them back to that place. So through the process of just research, um, that kind of laid the groundwork of kind of taking a key and opening up the Pandora's box. That was the research part. Well, when I 
first started to write it, when I when I sat down initially at the typewriter, I froze for about a month. Um, I just did not know where to begin. There was so much information that I had gotten over the three years that I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where to go with it. And this project was so important to me. And I wanted to make sure that I did my father and his memory and his honor justice. So, it, you know, it terrified me. And it wasn't until I sat down with my mother and got her blessing and she said, you can do this, go for it, that I finally got my thought together and, and knew which direction I wanted to go with writing it. So throughout the writing process, some chapters were easier because they were factual and I was going just based on the facts. I will tell you that the two hardest chapters that I had to write in the book was the chapter where my father died and the chapter where my mother found out. And those two chapters literally held me captive for about three weeks each where I couldn't type anything. My hands were pretty much paralyzed at the keyboard. And the Pandora's box was fully opened. I went through depressions. I went through bouts of uncontrollable crying fits and fear and despair. And it's like every emotion that could have been felt at that time in 1969 was in suspended, you know, universe somewhere. And then the floodgates opened and it all came out. But once I got through those difficult chapters and those difficult moments, and I came out on the other side, it was very cathartic in that I felt like all of those emotions that had been bottled up and kept inside for so long, for so many decades, were finally purged. And I can now talk about freely my, my father and his journey and what happened to him on January 1969 without welling up inside with tears or, or being just on the verge of a breakdown, how I used to feel, you know, many moons ago. So... It actually did some good. I, I guess I did some self-therapy with that one. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely is a journey, um, and it was something that was so very personal to me. And so that was the number one thing that I was nervous about. Did I do it justice? So to hear your words, I, I thank you for that. You definitely did your dad and his story justice. I mean, Lee, when I read the book, there, there's a definite shift from the moment, from the beginning of the book to when you talk about your dad passing away. And I could feel the charged emotions around that. And it was absolutely perfect as it needed to be because it was such a powerfully charged moment in, in the world. I mean, the insanity that had been going on very similar to what we're seeing in the world today that led up to all of these events that put your dad in the place he was at because, and when you and I were talking the other day, I love this, you said, your father always said the things that you need to do in life are be a good person, help your fellow man, and do the right thing. That mm -hmm. came very through in the book that each yeah. person in the world needs to be a good person and help their fellow man and do the right thing. And that's what he did throughout his entire life, even 
growing up with his his father and his mother and just the family and everything and what I know of you that's who you are as a person I mean well because at the end of the day it has nothing to do with political affiliation it has nothing to do with religious organizations it has nothing to do with that you know life for my father from his perspective was very basic you know be be a good person do the right thing if you see a need you know fill it if you see someone in trouble help them you know just do the right thing so that that very simple almost elementary childlike mantra just can take you through life and and change the world really seriously um you were talking about with the change in the book and there's something very significant um I don't know if most people would catch that, but I did it very intentionally. The chapter of uh, January 8, 1969, that's the name of the chapter. That's the day that my father was killed. I wrote that specific chapter in a different way than I wrote all the other chapters. And that chapter was done as a very deliberate timeline starting with this time and what was going on and this time and what was going on. And there's a reason for that. When I said previously that the chapter where my father died and the chapter where my mother found out were the hardest chapters that I had to write, this is why I had to write that chapter that way because it was so difficult for me to tell that part of the story of the day my father was killed, that I had to step outside of myself, separate myself from the, the personal part of the story and just be a journalist, just be a reporter, just see the facts. And so the only way, literally the only way that I could get through that chapter was to write it as a ticker tape timeline. And, and it showed the research that you did for this book, when you and I were catching up, you talked about that. Can you share what went into putting this book together? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, you know, it started, of course, with family stories. You know, I have been fortunate that, you know, my relatives, my father's friends loved him so much kept his memory alive throughout the years, um, just telling story after story after story. After a while, it's hard to distinguish, because I was five when he was killed, it's hard to distinguish what memories are yours fully and, and what are memories that have been fed to you that have become your memories. And so and that took some time to, to separate those. But it starts with family stories. So there's of course, a base that I already know. And I could have written the book just based on that, but I would have had to have invented and filled in so much, you know, other information that I said I'm not being true to the true story of Edwin R. Woodruff. And so there started the painstaking task of actually, before before I interviewed a soul, it was about, researching the locations at that time, Washington, D.C. in the 60s, Brooklyn, New York, 
in the 1960s, Quantico in the 60s. All these locations that I talk about in the book, even Seven Springs, North Carolina, where the killer was from, I had to research his background. And so I wanted to be factually accurate with that. So that kind of made little pieces of the foundation. And then, of course, I applied for my father's FOIA file, the Freedom of Information Act file. And I was initially told that because the file was so large that it was going to take about three years for me to receive it. Oh, wow. And I said, I, um, I'm kind of on a deadline, and that's not going to work. And so through many, many phone calls, I finally got someone on the phone, um, the FBI records, and we spoke for quite a long time and literally chopped down the file to the information that was absolutely crucial for the book so that they wouldn't have to send the entire file. We chopped down the file that was considered a large file to a medium-sized file, so it was about 800 pages. Now, those 800 pages, they told me I was going to have to wait about a year and a half to get. <laughs> wow. I said, this is not going to work. I'm on a deadline. I have a book to write. And so when I tell you I made countless phone calls and to agents at Washington Field Office, to the FBI Records Division, I wrote letters, emails, all kind of stuff, and finally... I got through, and I just impressed upon them, this is what I'm trying to do. I have a deadline. This is not going to work for me to wait this long, so I need this information. And so they, one day, in my email, just popped up, and all the files were there. And so that was the gift that kept on giving <laughs> that allowed me to write the book because that was such a gold mine of information in that the surviving agent, George Sullivan, gave statements to the FBI as well as the Metropolitan Police Department. And so I had his exact words right after it happened, exactly what happened. I had the coroner's report. I had the autopsy results. I knew what my thought in the autopsy report they actually said that there were um, bits of undigested processed meat and pickle in my father's stomach. And that confirmed that my mother told me that she had made my father a sandwich and gave him a pickle before he left, shortly before the shooting. And so... I'm telling you this because then everything started to make sense. It was like the, the missing pieces of the puzzle with that FOIA file then allowed me to figure out the things that were missing. And then similarly, in the file, um, there were letters after the shooting from J. Edgar Hoover and a bunch of condolence um, letters. But what I also did to try to be as factually accurate as I could 
anywhere where there were letters, there were letters that my father wrote to his brothers, I used those letters verbatim. I did not change a thing. If there was a typo, if there was a scratch out, I left it intact because I wanted my father's voice to come through. Similarly, with the letters from J. Edgar Hoover, he had written a letter to my mother and uh, talking about the conversation he had with President Lyndon Johnson about the shooting and losing his two agents. And I took word for word what was in that letter and turned it into dialogue. And so there's not one thing that's changed as far as the wording. Um, I just changed it into dialogue from a letter. And so those were the those were the steps that I had to take, and I was very, very careful about that throughout the book to remain just as authentic as possible, good, bad, ugly. It just had to be told exactly the way that it happened, and I think that's why it comes across in, in that kind of vivid way. It really does come across so vivid. Just the whole, I, I loved your dad's letters. It really showed his his humor, his character, his his drive for what he does, his passion for what he did and for family and, and all of that, which you so eloquently put in the book. I can't even imagine, Lee, going through coroner's reports and with after-action reports from um, George Sullivan about what happened when your dad was shot by the bank robber and everything. You know, I, 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 I'm a journalist myself, but when I went through some of my parents' files after they had passed away and I found some stuff about my brother back when he passed away, I remember how much it just brought up and how difficult it was to process that, and I was 10 when my brother passed away. Mm-hmm. It's a dedication that you had to honor your father, and, and that's all I keep thinking about is what enabled you to put together this book to tell this story that has come out now, which is just as relevant today as it was in 1969, maybe even more so, because there's so much we need to learn from people like your dad who just wanted to stand up and make a difference for the world, to make it a better place for their children, for their loved ones. Well, you know, the similarities in, in instances is almost eerie because I was um, speaking with someone last week and we were talking about everything that's going on, you know, now with Black Lives Matter and you know, um, the police brutality and, and killing. And, you know, I'm always torn because I'm very, very pro-law enforcement. My father was an FBI agent. My cousin worked in the Secret Service. I have countless uncles and cousins that are police officers and detectives. So I come from a family of law enforcement. I'm very Blue Lives Matter pro-law. And so, but I'm also pro-Black Lives Matter, and I understand that cause. And, and it's funny because everything that I feel is exactly what my father went through back then. He understood the civil rights movement. He had, aside to him, 
that if he wasn't an FBI agent would probably be on the picket lines and, you know, protesting and things like that. So right, he understood it very well. Going into the national news right, there, right now, we'll be back with more from Lee Woodruff, author of Memorial Star. Welcome back, everyone. If you missed the first half of the show, you're going to want to catch it on your favorite podcast platform because my guest has, is just doing an amazing job. I love having her on the show. And you can catch it wherever podcasts are. And if you're listening to us on podcast now, because this is you're listening on the recording versus the live show on iHeartRadio, please, I'd love it if you would share your love of the show with your friends, with your followers, and rate and review it because it does help us get found. And if you did miss the first half of the show, I'm here with Lee Woodruff, journalist and author of Memorial Star, the story of Edwin R. Woodruff, the nation's first African-American FBI agent killed in the line of duty. And um, Lee, for those who just joined us, this is your dad who you wrote about, and he yeah. is still the only African-American FBI agent killed in the line of duty. I mean, I think it's great that there haven't been others, and there really haven't been a lot of FBI agents killed in the line of duty, but it's just, it's such a powerful story, and it's still amazing to me that he is the only one. But that's a good thing, because the fewer of uh, those who are protecting us that are killed in the line of duty, the better. Yes, well, I say that every time I uh, have a speaking engagement or talk about my father. I said, you know, while I'm honored to receive whatever recognition that they're giving to my father, I also uh, am overjoyed that there are no others, and not even just, um, you know, African-American agents. You know, I don't, I don't want there to be any more. I think there's maybe 36 service martyrs um, in the FBI right now. My father and his partner were the 22nd and 23rd agents to be killed in the line of duty. Um, and, and just a little historical footnote, the last time two agents were killed in the line of duty at the same exact time, and I write about this in the book, um, it was 1934 in the infamous gun battle between FBI agents and uh, Babyface Nelson. Which so that's we all know there's been many movies. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that your dad's story that you wrote makes it to the big screen because I really think it's a story that needs to be told, that should be told, and would be an amazing movie. I think so, too. So from your, <laughs> from your lips to God's ears, and, you know, I, I need to pause for a second and and go back to something because we were uh, talking earlier about the process of, of writing it and I would not be 100% transparent if I didn't say that this all started with God truly this was placed in my spirit in 1997 September 26, 1997 and that was the day that the uh, Bill Clinton signed in uh, House Resolution 2443 into law to rename the Washington Field Office, the FBI Washington Field Office, for five slain agents that had worked out of the old post office building um, at various points in their careers, and my father was one of them. And at that ceremony, 
it just came into my spirit to write my father's story. Well, I, I was terrified, so it took decades for this to come out. But before I did anything, I went into prayer and I asked God that if it was his will, his way for me to write this story, because I was terrified to write it. I didn't know how. I'd never written a book before, so, you know, and it was an important story, and, and so I, I was just scared, just plain out scared. And I said, if it is your will, your way, God, then you are going to flow through me, flow through my mind, my fingers, that I type the right words, and I tell the story the way that it's supposed to be told, and just take it day by day. And I basically had to pray every day before I started to write. And when I look back on it, I actually see God through this story. I don't know if anybody else does. I don't think anybody else would be able to see that. But I can see where the hand of God helped me when I got stuck, when I needed to go to the next part, when I got to a difficult part. I can actually see that when I look at the book. And so I just, you know, I just wanted to take a moment to say that because I hadn't said that before. And that's probably the most important part of the whole journey. Faith was a strong part of your dad's journey as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that really struck me as well when I was reading, um, when I was reading the book, about the church in Brooklyn and having the street mm-hmm. renamed right at that corner, it all came together from when I originally, you know, read years ago that you had managed after years to get the street renamed after him. Now I know why that corner really was so important to you. Well, that, that's why I thought, yeah, that's why I fought so hard for that. And, look, it was not, um, you know, without its challenges. I I was challenged on that, but, you know, not to give a lot of credence to that story, um, there were just some people that were using my efforts to further their agenda. And so, you know, it became a juicy story for, for the news, um, which I refused to comment on because I thought that the whole thing was ridiculous anyway. And I said, I need to keep my eyes on the prize because that's what my father would do. And so I blocked out all the noise, the controversy that they were trying to manufacture. Um, And that's only because there were certain groups that were saying that the FBI had watched a group that used to have an organization um, on that corner in that neighborhood the ironic thing was they were attaching my father's name to it like he somehow had done something and that organization wasn't even formed until after my father was killed. And so, you know, trying to put the two together was insulting to me, but I said that's why my father would say, don't worry about that, keep your eyes on the prize and do what you need to do. I had the overwhelming support of the church and that played a large part in the success. And, and also, there were still people in the neighborhood who knew my father. 
My grandmother lived on that block for, for years. So they knew my family. So I, I had a personal vested interest in this with the community. And so they rallied around and, you know, everything was, um, you know, successful at the end. But my mission is threefold. I just need to say that. It started with the street co-naming in Brooklyn outside of St. Peter Claver. Um, the second part was writing the book, writing my father's story. There's a part that has not been fulfilled yet. And so the third part to this trilogy of honor, I guess, um, is I want to get certain items of my father installed in the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, as well as the National Law Enforcement Museum. And so those are the two things that I'm working on right now, as well as um, the screenplay to the story and hopefully the audio book. So I've got my hands full with that, but it is not the work is not finished yet until I get these things in the museum. It's interesting that you said that about the museum because I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day who I didn't know, but his sister used to be um, one of the events directors at the Smithsonian. Oh. So I don't know. Maybe I can reach out and see if she still has any, any pull to see if anything can happen there. So, you know, and if anybody is out there listening to the show live today, or on podcasts, and you can help in some way to make this happen, please reach out to, to me via the show, um, via email laura at laurasteward.com, or Lee, how can people reach out to you as well if they can help? Well, I am glad you said that. Um, Memorial Star does have a Facebook page. It's Memorial Star Novel, so you can send messages to um, that page. We also have Twitter, um, Instagram, Memorial Star Novel, um, at Memorial Star Novel, at, yeah, just look up Memorial Star Novel um, across the board, social media. You should be able to um, to find it. But um, I also am in touch with a few people with both museums it's just that this pandemic kind of halted everything because nobody was at at work in a traditional right. sense. So um, hope to resume that shortly. But yeah, every uh, every little bit of help helps. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. We're all here to help each other, right? That would that's your dad's exactly. Work. Absolutely, and and my parents as well. That's things that they always ingrained in me before the. National news break so rudely interrupted us at the bottom of the hour. You were talking about a conversation you had had with a friend about how your dad's story and what happened on January 1969 and, and the lead-up to that is, yes. is echoing the times of today. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I found it interesting because Everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and how I felt the same conflict that I imagine that my father would have felt being that he was in law enforcement, understanding that Blue Lives Matter portion of it um, with the Black Lives Matter, the civil rights movement of his day, um, 
he understood both sides completely. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of people have an all-or-nothing mentality. Like, you must be all for this side, or you must be all against this side. And I don't think that the world is that black and white. You know, you can be. It is possible to be pro-Black Lives Matter and to be pro-Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. I understand the whole gamut of it. I just understand that at times certain groups, individuals, organizations need our collective help and assistance at different times more than others. It was the exact same thing in the civil rights era that there were white people, there were people of different um, denominations, faiths, that were helping in the struggle. It wasn't just black people in the civil rights struggle. And so it was a collective effort of all types of different people that caused change and helped move things through. And that's the exact same thing that's happening today. And so I think that if we just rid ourselves of this all-or-nothing mentality, this us-against-them mentality. We are all in this together. You know, we all bleed red. We are all of the human race, not the black race, not the white race. It's the human race. And so if we just, like, take all of that aside, I think that things would be much easier because at the end of the day, we're way more similar than we are different. You know, that's just a fact. But we can't get past the roadblocks because, you know, people are constantly trying to make us feel like you have to be all in or all out. And that's where I feel the major disconnect is, and that's what I feel impedes progress. Yeah, it's such a touchy subject nowadays. And when I read the book, Memorial Star, I realized it was the same conversation going on when we were five years old. It was yeah, and the, the passage that I wrote in the book about the riots when Dr. King was assassinated is almost literally word for word what I could use for today's events. It, it you know, so it for me it seems cyclical. I saw a picture from the late 1800s, um, a bunch of African Americans walking down a street in New York City basically protesting um, Black Lives Matter. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't those words, but the sentiment was exactly the same. So I said, you know, this struggle is cyclical. It comes and goes. It, it, you know, so... I think there's a difference now that didn't exist in the past in that I think a lot more people are understanding of, and video has helped tremendously, you know, way back, you know, in the 60s or 100 years before that, there were no cameras. So you couldn't see a lynching. You couldn't see, you know, a cross burning. You couldn't see these things being done. Um, now, with everybody having a cell phone, you can see things. But I just want to say, you know, just just in fairness, I know that, that right now the world is focused on Black Lives Matter. 
I've seen videos where similar things have been done from white cops to white people. So it it's not just a black-white issue. There needs to be some disciplinary action, some overhaul in various police departments. But I don't want a few bad seeds to color, discredit the, the hundreds, the thousands of good police and law enforcement that there are out there because largely there are more good than bad apples. And, you know, so again, it, I, don't, I don't subscribe to all or nothing the extremes, you know, there, there's always a common ground, a middle ground, and we have to see the good and, and what's worthy on both sides. I kind of feel like if everyone were to read your book about your dad, that perspectives might shift. Because it, it's such a powerful story, and hearing your dad's views of what was going on and words that he said to other people during the riots, I think could help perspective shift. That's what this show is all about anyway. It's about helping people shift their perspectives and see other sides of issues. Um, I, this book, Lead to Me, came out at the perfect time. I know that for you it's been so hard because it launched just before the quarantines all hit and you had spoken at the FBI, and you had other speaking engagements set up to tell the story, to share with people, and then that all got shut down. To me, it's God's timing, because this book needs to be out now. It needs to be heard. The story needs to be heard. Your dad needs to be heard. Well, I always say, delay is not denial, so... Things happen in life that are out of your control and you roll with the punches, but just because a dream is delayed does not mean it's denied. So I truly believe that what is meant to be, you know, what God put in me, he's faithful to complete. And so that journey will be completed. It may not be completed how I thought it would have been, or, or it may not look like what I thought it would look like, but rest assured, I know that it will be completed, and so, you know, I can sleep easy at night knowing that, um, and, and actually, it makes me excited for the journey, because now I don't know what twists and turns it'll take, but <laughs> ultimately, I, I know that, um, you know, everything I set out to do with this and about my father and preserving his memory and his legacy um, will continue and, and will be completed. So I think it's a powerful story, just, you know, not, not to toot my own horn because it's not really about me, but I think it's a powerful story. I do think it's one that needs to be read only because it gives a unique personal perspective from kind of both sides, uh, it, you know, from a minority standpoint, the struggle and being, you know, one of the first to infiltrate um, what was an all-white organization and also, um, you know, from a religious standpoint, how, how faith guides you and, and keeps you um, through many of these events. And also, I have to 
spotlight my mother because, you know, at 26 years old, being now a widow with two small children, the strength and resilience that, that she had, you know, also goes back to, you know, faith and, and just persevering and her honoring my father's wishes and his words and continuing to give her children the life that my father wanted and making them the focus. So there's a, there's a bunch of little hidden meanings and there's, there's sub stories within the story. Uh, and so I tried to make the book layered so that it wasn't just one-sided about my father. My father died when he was 27. It's not like I had years and years and years of material to talk about. You know, it's a very short period of time. But I truly believe that, you know, even though it's a short period of time, the time that was spent was powerful and, and meant something. So, yes, I would um, I would very much like for everybody to read it. I know you and I were talking um, the other day, but I would like to offer your listeners a discount on the book on an autographed hardcover copy. So we've come up with a promo code for the website. And okay, uh, I want to share that so people know how to get a copy of the book because I think everybody really needs to read this book. Okay. And uh, well, I'm also going to give away a free copy of the book to anybody who reaches out to me on any of my social media. You can find me on social media anywhere at the Laura Stewart. So somebody's going to walk away with a, a free autographed copy of the book as well. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And so why don't you talk about how they can get it? Yes. And you can go to the website, which is www.memorialstarnovel.com. And when you go in there and go in the shop uh, area, go to hardcover autographed edition. And you can order a copy of the book. Put in your information, and you'll see the box that says promo code. The promo code for your listeners will be RADIO2020, so R-A-D-I-O-2020. If you put that in in the next two weeks, then you will basically be getting a hardcover autographed edition for the price of a paperback unsigned edition. Uh, which is nineteen ninety nine uh, plus shipping. So do that in the next two weeks, and I will be happy to autograph it if you want something else. There's a box in there, so if you want something else written in there besides just an autograph, just let me know what you want in there, and I'd be happy to write it. Um, on the website also, just um, so you know, there's uh, past television interviews that I've done, there's information about my father, the story, um, all kinds of little tidbits. I'm also going to, uh, on social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, in the future, I'm going to start to break the book apart and really bring it to life. So wherever I do have actual pictures that you know coincide with something I wrote in the book, I may show the picture and tell the story behind it. Or if there's an actual letter, such as, when I was talking about the letter from J. Edgar Hoover, um, I may publish those so people can see the source material that I used and then make that correlation to the book and, and bring it to life even further. 
I love it because the book already really comes to life beautifully the way you've written it. And I just want to make sure everybody knows the website again, memorialstarnovel.com, correct? Correct. Okay, and then they should go to the hardcover link and enter the promo code of RADIO2020 to get the hardcover for the price of the paperback and have you autograph it and sign it to them as well. Go into the hardcover autograph edition. Don't go because there's a one for just a hardcover. Okay. We want the hardcover autograph edition. Okay, perfect. And you're going to get that for the same price. And also, I will be giving away a free copy of the book to any the first person who reaches out to me via social media at the Laura Stewart anywhere on the social media platforms, or reaches out to me directly via email. Laura at laurastewart.com. Somebody's going to walk away with a free copy of the book. Memorial Star, the story of Edwin R. Woodruff, the nation's first African-American and to date only African-American FBI agent killed in the line of duty. Lee, thanks so much for being on the show and for writing this book. Thank you. All right, everybody. You know, I'm all about shifting perspectives and introducing you to amazing people and but most of all remember the right questions can change your life so what are you asking today have a great day everyone you've been listening to it's all about the questions starring laura stewart connect with laura at it's all about the and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today